You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast on your community radio station, 3CR. Uh, Today we're going to uh, hear from uh, Declan Fulber Kilik, who's a multidisciplinary artist, writer and performer. Uh, he uh, is part of the Black People's Union. He spoke at the pro-Palestinian rally in Melbourne on the 21st and uh, he was part of the uh, Stop the Dock picket down in Web Dock which turned into a huge police Ferrari uh, which um, we will also have a word later on in the program with some of the people who were involved, the Unions for Palestine and uh the APAN uh, people uh, um, who uh, were involved. We're going to do a little bit of a, uh, a chat about what happened and why it was so significant, this particular uh, WebDoc uh um, protest uh, to stop a picket. It was a picket to stop uh, the unloading of the Zim ship, which is an Israeli-owned uh, ship. Uh, that uh, and uh, we'll talk. We'll talk to Ben Holhoft of uh, 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 Unions for Palestine and in Tasnim Samak uh, about the issues that were involved there, and and also the uh, police behaviours. Uh, next week there will be a discussion with Mel's the. Uh, um, on one of the breakfast shows uh, about their concerns about what happened. Uh, and you can go to Mel's um, website to get their statement of concern. It's incredibly compelling reading. Um, Mel's being the um, Melbourne Activist Legal Support Service. So Mel's, have a look at it. It's, it's pretty incredible. And I'll put the link on the post uh, on the podcast. Um, we also hear a little bit from the Sydney rally in uh, uh, for Palestine on the 13th that that was given to us by Vivian Langford, uh, the producer for the Climate Action Show on 3CR. Uh, Vivian's been a, a stalwart recorder of the events in Sydney. Arula Kalafoi is talking uh, as a person whose family is in Gaza but uh, she also talks about uh, something which uh, we now have some information about, which is the International Court of Justice findings uh, in regards to the South African case against Israel uh, uh, for genocide against the... No, it's actually a, a, an action to uh, force 
uh, it to be understood that what Israel is doing is actually against the Convention on Genocide. That's what it really is. That's what the case is. Um, we uh, hear from the Melbourne City Councillor Olivia Ball, who was at the uh, 182nd anniversary of the hanging of uh, Tanaminawe and Malha Boyhini, the two freedom fighters, so Indigenous freedom fighters. Uh, they were hung just beside what today now is RMIT. There's a monument there. It's the first monument to the uh, frontier wars. But uh, Councillor Ball does an incredibly interesting job at, at, to look at the um, uh, European um, behaviours uh, in relation to Indigenous people as early as this. Uh, and uh, she points out that uh, the Melbourne City Council was the very first um, uh, uh, political organisation, I guess, uh, legalised uh, um, uh, form of a law uh, coming from the white people uh, at this time in the uh, settlement of Melbourne and the state of Victoria that as it became, um, <clears throat> it predates the uh, Victorian uh, Legislative Council. So that's a fascinating piece of uh, information. Uh, also, we hear from David Marr, who's just put out a book called Killing for Country, with a fascinating piece, just a very small piece from a webinar that was put on by the Australia Institute. Uh, they'll be doing a podcast. You can go to their uh, YouTube channel and you'll hear the entire piece. This is just a very small piece because uh, David Marr talks about a whole range of things uh, in relation to uh, that I wanted to talk about today uh, that... Uh, you know, that uh, has come to the fore with uh, the LMP's um, grim uh, uh, announcements around uh, dropping uh, treaty talks and uh, we're all tired of um, welcomes to country and all the rest of it. They've all been uh, enlivened by the uh, no vote and uh, they think uh, in the recent re referendum and they think that there's, there's votes in this. There's votes in uh, racism. Uh, which is really just, uh, as someone said, um, Australia, just a little bit racist. Still a little bit racist. <laughs> and uh, we hear from uh, Kristen O'Connell from the Anti-Poverty Centre about uh, the um, issues that are coming out of uh, the Albanese government's, what they call performative uh, process of uh, trying to get some gain um, votes by uh, doing a, a little bit of a song and dance around co uh, cost of living and stage three tax cuts. But anyway, we'll hear what their their response to that is as well. Uh, you're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. No more whispering in our arms Gonna rise up to break these chains Stop these killing games. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne invites you to join us on Saturday the 17th of February at midday at the State Library, Swanson Street, Melbourne to mark the 20th anniversary of the death in custody of Redfern teenager TJ Hickey. Honour the memory of TJ and the many deaths in custody families that now number more than 555 since the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. No one to date has been held responsible for these deaths. 
we demand end the practice of police investigating police and immediate implementation of all 339 recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Come along Saturday 17th of February, midday, at the State Library. Eastern Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, two pieces of news. Uh, as I was saying, the International Court of Justice has ordered Israel to take all measures within its power to prevent genocide in Gaza. It uh, made its deliberations yesterday. The World Court announced it has jurisdiction over the case brought by South Africa and dismissed Israel's bid to throw it out. The court says Israel must... Uh, punish any incitement to genocide and ensure its military doesn't break the Genocide Convention. This is not a call to stop military attacks, but an order to adhere to the Convention on Genocide. The interim verdict is a major blow to Israel and the US, according to Democracy Now!, which has undermined the case despite overwhelming evidence presented by South Africa. The court will not rule uh, on whether Israel has committed genocide today. That verdict could take years. For, uh, and if you want more information about that, you can get on to democracynow.org. Um, it's all pretty uh, disturbing, actually. The um, Meanwhile, people are being killed. Uh, and the last piece of news, which is equally um, a part of the weirdness that we're living in at the moment, is that King, Kim Williams will be the new chair of the ABC, replacing Ita Buttros in March 2024. Kim Williams was formerly the chief executive officer of News Limited. Boom, boom. My God. Talk about taking uh, playing a long game. <laughs> Poor old ABC. Talk about being sewn up and... Um, had had its autopsy completed. <laughs> anyway, we're going we're going to go and move to Declan Fuller uh, Gillick. Uh, he, as I said, he's a multidisciplinary artist, writer, and performer from uh, uh, Matupi, that's uh, Alice Springs, from the uh, Black People's Union, and he was speaking at the Pro Palestinian Rally on the twenty first of this month. Uh, he'd just come back up from the web dock and uh, this is what he had to say. This is the day before the absolutely outrageous police attack on the picket. Our dear brother Declan Ferber Gillick is an Aboriginal writer and community organiser. Comrades, in the recent words of the scholar Ilan Pape, we are living through the beginning of the end of Zionism. That's right. Zionism might not be overthrown today or tomorrow or next week or next year or next decade, but it will be overthrown. And it will fall for this reason. The contradiction between the Zionist occupation and the resistance of the Palestinians cannot be sustained because the Palestinians have the masses of the world's people on their side. The occupation cannot be sustained economically, it cannot be sustained politically, it cannot be sustained morally, and it cannot be sustained intellectually. And if you're following the Palestinian resistance on the ground, then you will know that the occupation cannot be sustained militarily. 
Zionism is institutionalised racism, and racism is oppression. And wherever there exists oppression, there exists resistance. And wherever there is prolonged violent oppression, there is prolonged, ever-developing, ever-changing, ever-growing, increasingly violent resistance. And when there is no more resistance, it means that the will of the oppressed has been crushed. Has the will of the Palestinian people been crushed? Has the will of the Palestinian people been crushed? No, it has not. And where there remains in a people the will to live, the will to fight, to liberate themselves, to throw off the yoke of settler colonialism, where there is a will to shake off, shrug off the oppressor, which is exactly and precisely that what Intifada means, then there is struggle. And do the Palestinian people still struggle? And how do you know that? And how do I know that? Because we are struggling with them. And so I offer a small correction to the words of Ilan Pape. We, comrades, are not simply living through passively the beginning of the end of Zionism. We are fighting for it. We are struggling towards it day by day, and we will win. For as it was famously said by a black militant revolutionary whom liberals insist on whitewashing, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. Now, comrades, I am an Aboriginal man. I'm a Central Arunda man from the Mbantwa people of Central Australia. And I wish to make something very clear that has been deliberately made very unclear. There are certain of our so-called Aboriginal leaders that the bourgeois press and the bourgeois institutions call upon to opine when they require a conservative Aboriginal voice for their malignant propaganda. And I am thinking in particular of people like Marcia Langton and Warren Mundine. And in recent months, Aboriginal people such as these have made the astonishing claim that we Aboriginal people don't see the connection between our own struggle and the struggle of Palestinian people. Indeed, these Aboriginal people make the astonishing and baseless claim that there is no connection to be found between the struggle of Aboriginal people and the struggle of the Palestinian people. And unfortunately, comrades, it gets worse, because I've heard it put by certain Aboriginal leaders and their associates that the real historical connection is to be found between the struggle of Aboriginal people for self-determination and the struggle for self-determination of the ethno-supremacist Zionist state of Israel. Comrades, certainly this is obfuscation, mystification and bourgeois intellectual backwardness of the highest order. But luckily we at the Black People's Union and at the community picket down on the dock don't go in for that kind of thing. For we at the Black People's Union are revolutionaries and when the wicked bourgeois reactionary mind deploys mystification, we deploy dialectics. Because the Palestinian people are unoccupied people who have endured over 75 years of European white supremacist settler colonial rule. And Aboriginal people have endured 235 years of occupation and political rule at the hands of what were originally and are still overwhelmingly white settlers of European origin. Zionists claim that based on a particular interpretation of, of ancient religious scripture, the land of Palestine was given to them by God. White European imperialists claim that under the doctrine of discovery, this continent was given to them through the sovereignty of the king by God. The racist ideological conceit upon which Zionist Israel relied was that Palestine was a land without people for a people without land. The racist legal fiction upon which the British relied in their violent acquisition of this continent was terra nullius, an empty land devoid of people. 
In Gaza today, it's a starving bloodbath. An early European settlement, this continent too, was a starving bloodbath. Israel has concentration camps in occupied territories, but the Brits had reservations, missions, and today they have giant prisons filled up with our people. The Zionists have bombs, tanks, sniper rifles and white phosphorus. The Brits had poison flour, bayonets and pistols. Palestinians are still in Palestine. And That's why we say one struggle, one fight. That's why we say from the river to the sea, always was, always will be. That's why our revolutionary indigenous comrades in Turtle Island say, Palestinian resistance is the tip of the spear of our collective liberation. This is a life and death global anti-colonial struggle against a crumbling empire, and it's being led by the most developed, courageous, and theoretically cogent elements of the proletarianized masses of global indigenous and occupied peoples. And I thank and I applaud the union movement and the workers' movement for its solidarity over the last 104 days of hell. But the fact is, we need more. We need to see the workers' movement and the union movement down tools. We need to see union leadership mandate stop work action. We need to see workers refuse to touch ships or load docks bound for Israel. Israel must be treated as the pariah that it has chosen to become. That's right. We need to see rank-and-file workers drag their leadership, kicking and screaming, back into positions of unwavering, uncompromising militancy in support of the Palestinian people, just like they held when they brought down, helped to bring down the fall of apartheid South Africa. And this means that at this stage, unfortunately, comrades, a betrayal of the Labor Party. And it means a betrayal of the ACTU. Because as things stand today, comrades, I'm unfortunately at pains to say that the ACTU and the Labor Party are not the friends of the Palestinian struggle for liberation, are not the friends of the Aboriginal struggle, are not the friends of the proletarian masses. Led by the Palestinian struggle, we are fighting against fascist genocide. We are fighting to get the blood-soaked imperialist boot off the boats of tens, off the throats of tens of thousands of maimed, disfigured, burnt and broken Palestinian children, mothers, grandparents and workers, those of them that are still left. And those people have a right to what is rightfully theirs, their land, their future, their self-determination. And if you're not a friend if you're not a friend of those that are fighting against genocide, then you are the enemy. And I'm saying right now, it's time to pick a side. On that note, I'm going to introduce our first speaker today, is Rula Kalfawi. Rula is from Gaza. She lives now in Sydney. She's a former employee of the United Nations, and she's going to talk to you more about this whole situation. Thank you, Rula. Assalamu alaikum everyone, peace be upon you. Can you hear me? I'm sorry if I'm not as loud as I'm clear as I'm trying to gather all my strength to be here. But the minute I just saw the crowds coming in, life is coming back to me. And I want to tell you about me and about my family in Gaza. My name is Rula Khalafawi, born and raised in the Gaza Strip the beautiful Gaza Strip where my mother, my father, my sister and their family are right now is still there. I want to, you to remember their names like everyone else because I have no idea in another minute where they're going to be. My mother, Mukarram Khalafawi. My father, Munzir Khalafawi. 
My sister, Manal Khalabawi, and all her five children are now in the Gaza Strip standards. My father, just to give you an idea, is born in 1939. He's older than the State of Israel. He's surviving the second Nakba. And can I tell you something? With all, between the first Nakba, when he was a refugee, a boy of six years old, till this Nakba, and in between all these wars, he never, never accepted to leave Gaza. He always tells me, Baba, I'm like the sea, like the fish of the sea. I never leave this city. And he never did. He never did. And my mom, I have to say, in my attempt to try desperate to get them out, I want my family to be safe just for now. And I'm trying to convince them and see what can I do. And you know what my mom is telling me? I won't leave till I go back to my home. It's shake on it and replant my plants and water every plant in my garden. That's what my mom is thinking of. That's what my mom and this is the type of resistance that my family has. My sister and her children, everyone in a different place. When I have a contact with her, I am so scared to ask her, do you have food today? How could I ask her? Are you warm with this weather? Because I'm so scared of the answer. What can I do with the survival guilt being here and unable to help them? So imagine this is what we feel, the Palestinians, all of us, but when you have family in there, not knowing every minute what's gonna happen, and knowing that every 10 minutes, a child is losing a limb in Gaza, a child dying at the day in Gaza, more over than 9,000 children killed. I hate statistics. I don't wanna talk about statistics. They're not statistics. They're names, they're stories. I know every corner in the Gaza Strip. I was there for three months. I took my children to see everything about Gaza and couldn't see, of course, the rest of Palestine. The Israeli army will never allow me to go to Al-Quds, to Jerusalem or any place. <laughs> What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. We were swimming in the sea All my
Protests, rallies or actions in Burn City, then chances are you've heard us. Renegade Solidarity Audio Force are the noise behind the cause, amplifying the voices of resistance on the streets since 2017. 
A volunteer crew of artists, activists, sound techs, musicians and troublemakers, we provide the sound systems to make sure that your demands are undeniably loud and clear. To bring the decibels, we need your help to upgrade and maintain our equipment. Join us at Miscellanea on Saturday the 27th of January from 9pm for a Renegade Solidarity Audio Force fundraiser in collaboration with Secret World Records. Featuring Ramsey, Marushti, Pataphysics, Lizzie Nice, Joe Dubs and Enmets. Follow us on the socials at renegadesolidarity.audioforce and tickets are available through the link in our bio. That's Saturday the 27th of January from 9pm at Miscellanea in the city. A 3CR supporter. Tickets are now on sale for the 2024 Marxism Conference happening over the Easter weekend. The Marxism Conference is one of the biggest gatherings of revolutionaries, radicals and activists from around Australia and across the world. Three days of discussions, interviews and debates on key questions and themes for socialists, covering radical working class history, Marxist fundamentals, left debates and global struggles happening today. With our world entering a new era of accelerated climate crisis, economic chaos and rising imperialist tensions, it's now more important than ever for socialists and anti-capitalists to get together to discuss and debate ideas for a world in crisis. Lock in your spot to Australia's biggest socialist conference and grab your tickets now at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, we've got uh, Ben Hordiff on the line. I probably said that completely incorrectly, so we'll justify my uh, pronunciation in two shakes. G'day, Ben. I couldn't rouse anybody else, so you're going to have to be the sole spokesperson here, okay? No worries. Okay, now you're from um, Unions for Palestine. That's right. I'm a member of Unionists for Palestine, yeah. Yeah, and uh, there's been a, a, a picket down at uh, WebDoc. It's not the first. It's uh, about the third, actually, and it was targeting a Zim ship. Now, can you tell my listeners, just for those who aren't around the issue, why it was significant to be targeting a Zim ship that was coming into Melbourne port? Well, Zim is the Israeli national shipping line, and... Um, after October 7th, Zim made statements that it was throwing its weight fully behind the uh, military efforts, as Israel characterizes it, in Gaza. Um, and so the Federation of Palestinian Trade Unions and many other groups, the, the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions campaign and uh, other trade unions and uh, union and advocacy groups globally have called on unionists and activists to boycott and picket the operations of Zim shipping because it's uh, part of the, you know, genocide supply chain. As we, as we heard last night from the ICJ, genocide is occurring in Gaza and Zim shipping is, you know, one of the main, uh, you know, yeah. points of, of, of that supply chain. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's about it's about actually having an effect on the commercial enterprises of the capitalist system. I mean, they're they're involving themselves in genocide. They're pretending that it's not happening. We've got people dying every second of breath, and uh, then they just want to have this song and dance to to slow down uh, general. um, observation of what's going on, but it's impossible because of uh, social media for a start. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, you will hear as well in the coming days and weeks when the question of what happened down at Port Melbourne uh, over last weekend and into Monday uh, is, you know, being questioned and, and discussed. You will hear a lot of bad faith uh, reportage. Uh, and commentary saying, oh, well, they claimed to be stopping the, you know, the export of weapons from Australia to Israel, but that's not the case, or we don't know that that's the case. That wasn't the claim. That's never been the claim. We don't know what's in any one shipping container that comes off or goes on to uh, a ship, any ship, Zim or otherwise. Um, Even Wharfies haven't received the manifests of shipping containers contents for decades now since that uh, law was changed and that that's no longer, you know, those manifests are no longer provided. We don't know whether one ship is containing weapons or parts of weapons. Um, the, the call from unionists and the, the boycott campaign inside Palestine and in the, in the Palestine advocacy kind of space globally is interrupt the supply chain as you as you put it rightly interrupt the flow of capital um, into and supporting the current genocide and the genocidal acts that have been ongoing since the Nakba, since 1948 and in fact before 1948. In fact it's quite extraordinary the level of power that the Zionists uh, employ throughout all the media as well as uh, through government's uh, connections. Uh, the, the standing there in a community picket down at Webb Dock is one of many ways that the community can stand up against this barbaric act. That's right. And, I mean, I also have some experience in the local council organising space. So I'm a resident of Darabin City Council. And here in Darabin, we had to fight very hard back in December to get councillors to recognise that the will of the community was that there be a strong motion passed on Palestine, raising the flag, committing to council divesting. So, again, that... Um, interruption of the, you know, the, the financial capital flow there, um, divesting from companies and super funds complicit with Israeli uh, genocide and uh, occupation, illegal occupation under international law, uh, apartheid. And um, the there can't be business as that, usual. There can't be business as usual. There can't be business as usual. And in the process of all of that activism... We had, I mean, just to give a really concrete example of what you've raised in terms of the the pro-Israel lobby, we had, you know, unanimous support, except for one councillor who absented herself from the chamber to avoid having to vote at all. (laughs) We had unanimous support for that motion. And then when the motion came to bring the flag down um, and was passed initially, 
we had the JCCV, uh, you know, well-known right-wing pro-Israel lobby group crowing on social media the very next day saying, we've had a win in Darabin, uh, the Palestinian flag is coming down, and that is because we successfully lobbied the Deputy Mayor Tim Lawrence. So that is how the pro-Israel lobby operates. They do it shamelessly. They publicise the fact that they have lobbied individual politicians. Um, they, you know, they, they will be working for sure on even activists within the space that is organising these pickets. They're working on, you know, they're, they're doing their best to work on any actors in the space, union officials, um, politicians, of course, local, state, federal politicians. Now, in the event... Darabin for Palestine and the community there was able to push back. We mobilised midsummer. We mobilised the um, Aboriginal community in Darabin, uh, who both said, you know, the queer and Aboriginal communities both stood up and said, not in our name will this flag be removed. That's a bad faith, you know, attempt to wedge these struggles against each other when, in fact, they're united. Um, but the point is that the pro-Israel lobby is... Very in strong. overdrive now, yeah. trying desperately to turn this narrative around and, you know, get get little wins where it can. But Well, frankly, no, what, they're, what they're, they're doing effectively desperate. is dividing the conversation into all these little splinter fragments when in actual fact people are still dying in Palestine. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, to come back to your point earlier... The, talking about what Unionists for Palestine have been doing at the docks, it's the third action that Unionists for Palestine have initiated. But it's not the third picket. It's the first successful picket that we've been able to establish. And that's because the first two actions were... I mean, the first one was a protest, a rally, mm, yeah. that did manage to get some symbolic win in terms of um, delaying the ship yep. because, you know, the pro-Israel lobby and Zim's operations specifically, they're, they're basically the same thing, but um, they're watching very closely what's happening here in other parts of, of the world where Zim operates and, and has to dock um, to, to do trade. They're watching very closely and they they're watching, they were watching already back in uh, November, I think it was, when the first, you know, quote-unquote, community picket was established for, us for several hours down also at Web Dock. And because they can see that a protest is happening, they changed the schedule. So the ship was not, you know, the ship was due to arrive the first time that um, Unions for Palestine organised an action. And then by the time the action came around, the, the shipping schedule had changed. Now, shipping schedules also change for operational reasons that might be independent of, um, of actions. But by the second time, this was just, uh, you know, later, later in December, um, that was a picket that was called by U4P. That's how we, that's how we refer to it uh, as a shorthand. Yep. Um, and that was of the Zim ship... The, the Sparrow, the Zim Sparrow. Yeah. Now, we announced that picket maybe a week or a week and a half in advance. 
And a few days after we announced the ticket, we can see, because they're, you know, they're tracked with GPS, we could see the Zinsbarrow halfway to Melbourne from Sydney do almost a 180-degree <laughs> turn to the water and go back up to Port Kembla and yeah. sit at Anchorage in Port Kembla. Um, it, couldn't, it can't dock in Newcastle. Port Kembla is, is, is one of the ports of Newcastle. It can't dock there. They don't have the facilities to unload large container ships, and it was due to Melbourne anyway. It can't, you know, I mean, yeah. docking in Sydney wouldn't make sense. It just sat there and waited, and it costs them thousands or tens of thousands of dollars a day. The one figure we've heard is $11,000 an hour that it's delayed. Um, it just sat there and waited it out. Eventually, once the rally happened, it happened at the docks. It was a great success. But that wasn't that wasn't was Webb. Speaking. That wasn't Matt down Abbott at Webb Dock, was it? That the was the second at, one was not at Webb. No, that was at Appleton. Yeah, yeah, and much harder to get to. Right, it was a bit hard to get to, and you know, Unions for Palestine is also learning like what it means to try to establish effective community pickets at the dock space. Yeah, or multiple multiple dock spaces. Um, so the first one was really, I mean, I. I think we probably used the language of a picket, yep. but uh, I'm not sure we did actually. It was a, you know, it was a, it was an action at the dock when a ship was due to, due to dock. Yeah, and I that first action gave birth to an occupation down at the docks that later became Block the Dock. Yeah, that was the, that was the name of of that. Which is a great name, um, I'll have to say. Ongoing action, I love it too. And Riyad Al-Adasi, a, a, a nurse from Gaza who's been, you know, quite an important figure in this movement. And it's a shame that Tasneem is not here with us. Um, Tasneem Samak from Free Palestine Melbourne, um, you know, is, is one of many Palestinian activists on the ground here in Melbourne who have been absolutely central, of course, in... Uh, the, in this organising, and I want to speak to what happened with this picket. So, yeah, at the yeah. first one, which turns into an occupation after unionists are like, okay, well, we've had a successful rally, we've turned around some trucks that have Zim container sh containers on them. That was a symbolic kind of uh, moment that was reported in Al Jazeera and across the world, but it's not. It was not yet. Uh, an effective community picket of a work site such that a ship could not be loaded or unloaded. Right. right. Then the second the second action happened, as you said, at Swanson Dock on Appleton Road. Um, that one was also advertised in advance, and the Zim ship turned around and waited it out. So that's a, that, that was a, a significant win, but again, because the ship never got into the dock... We weren't actually. We didn't end up able to picket the worksite. And yeah. but this uh, web, but this one down at Web Dock was a much uh, that that started on the Friday. Started on the Friday, and the key thing here is that we took our cues from comrades in um, Western Australia and Fremantle, Union for Palestine there. Um, supported, I understand, although I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not really across the on-ground operations there, but significantly um, supported by, um, you know, socialist, organised socialist groups there. Yep. 
um, they realised that the key, if the if the picket was going to be effective and not tip off Zim shipping in advance to just turn their ship around and, and, and put it at anchor and wait, you know, wait until the, the planned action passed, we had to not advertise the picket, you know, much more than 48 hours in advance. So yep. with this third one, um, we decided to publicise it about 48 hours out. Yep. It already established, um, you know, uh, a way of communicating directly with fellow unionists and other concerned uh, community members who were prepared to put their bodies on the line on a picket. And we organised all of that and mobilised all of that such that uh, Zim shipping was not tipped off in advance and the ship was basically already in Melbourne. It was, it was, it was so close to Melbourne that it didn't make sense to turn it around. And the picket was established on the Friday and it was, you know, established in very large numbers to begin with, but close to 200 is what I have kind of heard. It's very hard to know exactly these, these numbers. But um, so that was unionists um, and a broad coalition of groups and individuals across the community. And as I said to people on the Sunday afternoon, when the huge Sunday rally had been um, told and and, and, and invited by a number of speakers, Declan uh, Ferber-Gillick, that I think you might have mentioned earlier on the show, um, who also unfortunately can't be with us for this conversation, but, you know, has been on 3CR um, last week and, and is keen to kind of keep keep having these conversations about what happened with Declan Nasamashni, uh, again, Tasneem Samak, had been asking the rally, come down to the docks. You know, this started on Friday afternoon. It's now Sunday afternoon. That's 48 hours. That's quite possibly, I can't say this for sure, but it's quite possibly the longest successful picket of a dock worksite in Melbourne's history. I've heard, and I, you know, again, I, I can't be certain, but I've yeah, heard yeah, from that's right. I'm who sure really there's knows. someone out there that's going to be able to tell. But I tell you what, the what happened between 4:30 p.m. to 8 p.m. on Monday, the 22nd, uh, the way the police behaved was extraordinary. Well, the police, um, the police behaved with Nick police, including the uh, port, Critical... the public order response team, okay, the, yeah. the riot cops, essentially behaved with the same kind of heavy-handed brutality that we've come to know them for. <laughs> um, but but that, Monday wasn't the first time. They tried to clear the picket at least three times prior okay. to that. Yep, tell us about um, that. Friday night, they uh, riot cops were in there trying to establish a corridor to get workers in. They managed to get a couple of cars, but they weren't wharfies in those cars. They were... Um, refrigeration workers. Saturday morning, they came back. There's basically two shift changes um, on the dock, 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. So 6 p.m.-ish on Friday night, they they tried to uh, establish a corridor through the picket to basically break the picket and get workers in, and they essentially failed. They certainly failed to get 
the workers in who were necessary to unload and reload ships at birth, and that was the aim of the picket very clearly from the beginning. So that, that, that failed, even though they man- did manage to get some cars in. Saturday morning, they, they came back, and under um, un- powers that are unclear to me and that are subject to review currently by the uh, Melbourne Activist Legal Service, MALS, in terms of what, what were the powers that police were acting on there, they read a move-on order, and despite having previously told us that that move-on order was the, on the Friday night was based on the Traffic Act and that therefore simply standing off the road and not blocking traffic would have meant that we were not subject to any yep. move-on order, not arrestable, etc. Um, they kettled, they attempted to kettle the entire picket and clear it not just off the road but off also the you know the the, yeah, the, the grass sidewalk area. As, yeah. the grass area um, and ha- acted with extreme aggression with the liberal and trigger happy use of pepper spray one arrest was made and that person was in fact taken into custody um, later released but you know very very aggressive and for many activists and unionists on the ground, very disturbing behaviour, which actually caused quite a lot of people to feel that they couldn't remain at the picket um, and and be safe. Now, fortunately, uh, about 20 people were stationed at a different gate of the terminal, uh, the Victorian International Container Terminal, VICT, so they weren't kettled out, and a number of other particularly nimble comrades managed to avoid the kettling and then a number of the rest of us who had been kettled and cleared decided okay we've been pushed out but we're not going home we're going to go around the back and we're going to you know come back to the to the site and see what we can do and what we could do was that the police had eventually left they again didn't succeed in getting any workers in because our understanding is that wharfies at that site, um, backed by their union, said it is not safe for us to cross this picket line. It's an OHS hazard, and that is, what, you know, it's our right under industrial legislation to refuse to go to work under, you know, those kinds of conditions, OHS hazards. And they repeatedly, this is what we understand, of course, I'm not a member of the MUA, I'm not uh, a wolfie myself, but what we understand from the rank and file is that they were refusing to be forced by the bosses to be escorted by riot police into their work site um, as if that was a safe thing to do. We also understand that WorkSafe made a ruling that, no, indeed, it was not safe, and that, therefore, the boss's attempts to stand those workers down without pay as a kind of punishment, um, you know, just don't, wouldn't fly legally. And so no, no wharfie has been docked pay. Um, well, you know, we there's, so, there's something... Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, go on. Yeah, sorry. Cause, uh, yeah, just, to, just to finish the, the narrative about the police brutality, we re-established the picket on a Saturday morning. We called out as many activists and community members as we could. And from that point onwards, it, it remains something that individual unionists for Palestine 
uh, activists and organizers were involved with, but it was no longer primarily a Unionist for Palestine picket. It became a genuine community picket at which uh, Palestinians, um, Arab and Muslim community members, anarchists, uh, socialists, communists, uh, all kinds of people that had never been at a picket or never imagined themselves to be involved in that kind of um, activism suddenly, you know, became involved. We had the motorcade come down from <laughs> Faulkner. Yes. Um, we had a lot of children there. It was often a really kind of, you know, a, a carnivalesque, a wonderful carnivalesque atmosphere down there with music and, and speeches and food being shared around, people meeting for the first time. So that was re-established on Saturday, and that held throughout Saturday afternoon, Saturday night, um, Sunday On Sunday afternoon, the pre-Palestine Melbourne big rally on, you know, the, the weekly Sunday rally yeah. was called down to the docks and really a goodly number of, of people turned up so that by Sunday afternoon we had some 200 again um, people down there. And there, were there was a further attempt on Sunday afternoon to get workers in to again establish a corridor um, through a different gate. They really just pulled out all the tricks that they, they knew. And each time we're talking about, you know, somewhere around 40 riot cops by my eye. You would have to look at the, at the MALS report probably to try and establish numbers more clearly. But, you know, at least 30 riot cops. And on this occasion, on Sunday afternoon, I would say probably that number again of, of, of so-called ordinary cops. Um, so that's getting like 50 or 60 cops down there, which is a huge deployment. Yes. Again, they failed. Again, scenes of absolute jubilation at the repeated victories of the community picket over Victoria Police's attempts to clear it, to break it, um, and to, you know, to force Wharfies to, to go to an, what we had established as an unsafe work site, which, you know, I'm sure your listeners will probably be aware is really the only way that the community can establish that it and workers do in fact have the right to strike, which the International Labour Organization uh, has said that Australia does not currently enjoy yeah, because right. of the nature of the um, fair work legislation, which is similar to other legislation that's been in place in Australia in the past, for instance, when Clary O'Shea organised the you know, uh, and many others, of course, organised the strikes that, that were also at that time, quote-unquote, illegal. Um, illegal according to Australian legislation, but possibly... Uh, morally not illegal. Morally legal, <laughs> and even under international... Now, under international law, there is, a light, there is a right to strike, and that right has been abrogated by the industrial relations... Uh, legislation and framework in place in Australia that, you know, that limits industrial action to protected bargaining periods, that in fact even makes any hard picket illegal, even if you are in a protected yeah, um, yeah. industrial, you know, in, in bargaining. Well, well, it's, it's, it's strictly speaking illegal yeah. to hard picket a work site, yeah, yeah. but, you know, unions still do it because unions understand that often the only way to challenge these laws is to break them. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, like tying somebody up and then saying, defend yourself, defend yourself. Well, right. And, <laughs> you know, unions and the community won't... It is outrageous, and unions and the community won't stand for it. But we have to work together because if individual workers were at this point in time to say, I'm not going to work a ship that is supplying genocide. We know it's genocide now. It's established... I mean, we knew it before, but it's yeah. now established in international law, in the international discourse. No one can legitimately argue any longer that what is happening in Gaza and the West Bank, frankly, yeah. is genocide. But, you know, what, what came before the court was, was, was the Gaza case and, you know, the case of the Palestinian people as a people. Mm. So it's genocide. And if any worker individually or collectively, were to say, I'm not going to work a ship that is supplying genocide, Australian law gives the boss the right to fine that worker hundreds of thousands of dollars as an individual, and that tallies up to, you know, fines of millions of dollars for any group of workers, including a group represented by a union, that would take that kind of principled... Um, as you as you said, moral stance uh, in terms of their workplace organising. Oh, in solidarity now, with we, their 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 uh, compatriots in another absolutely. country. Absolutely, yeah. And in response to their fellow unionists' call to do just yeah, that, exactly. Um, so that's uh, why uh, the let, community let, needs to step in and say, yeah. "All right, well, we will establish the ticket. We will make it unsafe for you to go to work because that is, you know, that's the loophole through which um, workers are able." to stay away from the work site, that's right. Um, And, you know, this was a community picket that lasted from Friday at around midday or 2pm through to Monday, 4 or 5pm, as you said, to come come full circle now, the fourth attempt. Yeah, which was just extraordinary. Extraordinary, and, I, you know, full disclosure, I wasn't down there at the time, I was at work. Um, as were many people, and my understanding is that although many people were on the way to the docks because the clever community organisers who were there on the day had decided to call a rally at the picket for 5pm, we in Darabin for Palestine had relocated our rally, which was to be at the Darabin City Hall down to the docks to also try to boost numbers, Um because, you know, the, the coda to that story is that we, we had a win against the pro-Israel lobby and managed to keep the Palestinian flag flying in Darabin. Yes. Um, but at the time that the riot police attacked, having installed on Sunday night a camera inside the terminal but right next to where the main picket was being held so that they could constantly surveil the picket and know precisely when the numbers were at their lowest ebb, Around 3.30 on Monday afternoon, picketers numbered around 20 across both gates for very low numbers, and the police attacked, and what we... Multiple reports confirmed that there were at least 200 police on the ground. That is... uh, The the mouths, the, the, the legal observers have told me that that represents more or less the maximum possible deployment of metropolitan Victorian police, riot and otherwise, so port and and standard police, 
that, that could be that could be deployed in any one moment, and cops outnumbered picketers about ten to one. Yeah, uh, I'll just slip and my mind, listeners. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and I'm talking to Ben. Uh, how do you say your name? Well, my family says horse, which horse. is itself a yeah. butchering of the Danish pronunciation. <laughs> so so be, don't worry well, about, it. about it. Yeah. Well, Ben, uh, and, and we're talking about what happened down at Webtalk, the community picket, and we've now arrived at uh, the uh, Monday where the police are, are uh, ten, uh, t- 10 to 1 uh, versus right. the uh, picketers. That's right. And so a lot of people were arriving in the period that the cops were attempting to clear the picket, but they were being denied access, again, on questionable legal basis, um, because what the cops started to do after their first failed attempt to clear the picket was to get someone from the Port Authority down, clearly under police instruction to do so, to read a trespass notice to picketers assembled, and then on the basis of that being read, the police could then read a, re- a move-on order on the basis of the trespass notice that had been given. But that, the, the trespass notice has to be given in person and it has to be given by the, you know, quote-unquote owner of the land. Uh, it can't be given by police themselves, mm. right? So then people were arriving because there'd been an emergency call put out to the community, get down to WebDoc ASAP. Um, if you're coming for the 5 p.m. rally, please come immediately because police are currently preparing to attack and clear the picket. People did come down in droves. That's why there was then a gathering on Sandridge Beach after the picket was finally successfully cleared by these cops that outnumbered picketers about 10 to 1 of, you know, a gathering of about 150 people because people, you know, the community had learned about this picket. They were yep. they were at ready at the drop of a hat to mobilise. Unfortunately, you know, there wasn't... Um, there just wasn't time to get people down there, and people who were trying to get into the picket were being refused access to the area by police um, in a way that, you know, I can't, I can't say this for sure from a legal point of view, but it seems to us that police did not have the power to do that. Well, according to the the Mel's legal team's uh, testimony, which is the Statement of Concern Policing of the Web Doc, which you can look at at the Mel's website. Yeah, Uh, I recommend it. Yeah, yeah, recommend it, because it's absolutely staggering information because, like, there's a section in it where it talks about the the Mel's people, the legal observers, uh, at one point are having reasonable discussions with higher-level cops while the... Um, people on the ground, the cops on the ground, and I, I would hazard a guess the critical response team, having had some experience of the critical response team, were yeah. basically doing whatever they liked. Mm. Yeah, because uh, well, the and, indiscriminate you know, use of um, uh, what they call pepper, uh, to, well, I, I call it tobacco spray. It's this horrible, horrible stuff. Um, yeah. that just uh, is just horrible stuff. And what's interesting, it's pointed out, is that, the and I think the police think this is what this um, uh, uh, pepper spray is. Like it says, we're, uh, 
Legal observers recorded multiple uses of a pepper spray against people who were not posing any direct physical threat to police and were chanting, remonstrating or attempting to communicate concerns to the police at the time they were sprayed. It appeared to the legal observers that on several occasions the spray was used as a coercive attempt to move people from an area. Now, that's not what it's for. It's for uh, only supposed to be used uh, if the, there's a physical threat and confrontation to the police, right? But I've That's got right. a suspicion that the police, in my experience, I've seen them use it just indiscriminately. Um, and I think that they think that's what it's for because, you know, I've got the power. That's right. And look, I can tell you from first-hand experience on a number of occasions that that is how police were using it even before this uh, really calamitous and shocking um, attack, and I think attack really is the right term when you're talking about outnumbering the community 10 to 1, um, where the police finally did succeed, of course they did, with numbers like that in clearing the picket, but from the Friday afternoon, pepper spray was being used um, on people that were not even approaching police. And as you say, that's a really important distinction. Yeah. Uh, pepper spray or OC spray, as it's sometimes referred to, is supposed to be used to subdue yeah. someone who is exactly posing a physical, a direct physical threat to an individual police officer when, in fact, it... I mean, it's very clear. It's captured in a number of... Of course, you know, the other thing about it, this being the social media age yeah. is that everyone had their phones out. So yeah. there's plenty of evidence of, that the way that police were using the pepper spray was you know, in a premeditated attempt to um, subdue and clear not physical threats to themselves, but the picket itself. Yeah. And I think a perfect example of this, and also one that, you know, might gladden the hearts of some comrades who are listening, is the one of the chief commanding officers. So in any situation like that, there is a police person who is, you know, running the show, basically. They're the one to read the move-on order. They're the one that's supposed to liaise with the police liaison. We always had a police liaison down at the picket. I was the police liaison on a number of occasions. And, you know, that there were essentially two people that um, were, were running the show from the police side. One of them, Helena, I forget her last name, um, and alas, I didn't see this with my own eyes, but I think it was captured on, on film, uh, was so indiscriminate with her use of her own pepper spray that at one point she sprayed it into the wind and it sprayed back into her own eyes. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, you know, not to be deterred, although she certainly was uh, injured, uh, she immediately, before being taken off to, the, to a police car to have her own eyes, you know, rinsed out, uh, as we had to do, as our medics team, including Riyad Aladasi that I mentioned earlier, a nurse who was leading um, the, the community medic team down at the picket, you know, as we often had to do with comrades to, to help them clear that stuff from their eyes, from their hands and, and, and body, you know, because it burns the skin also. It's not just the eyes. Yeah, no, um, no, it's really, I mean, I, unless you've actually seen this stuff, you don't realise, it, it's like pepper spray. It sounds like it's a, you know, yes, it would sting and it would be this light sort of airy sort of uh, 
a puff into your face, but it's not. It's yeah, this slur. No. It's this you know slimy um, foam. Foam. It's a tentacle like, type thing, and it's, it's uh, right. a, a it's rusty like red. Yeah, that's right. And it's like the the hottest chili you oh, can imagine in liquid foamy form that gets in everything. It gets on your skin. Yeah. Uh, it gets on very dangerous know, on for people with. So that then when you when you eat anything, yeah. you can you know that that tastes spicy because it's it's t- you know your fingers have touched it for a brief moment. But um, but, uh, but uh, I'll, inter- I'll interrupt you. Officer. I'll interrupt yeah. you here because actually. Uh, this is really important. There were treatment areas were established to gather and treat injured right. people. These areas were chosen as they were located away from police lines and in public areas outside the web dock area. Now, outside, not trespassing. One was established in a seated area along the Todd, Todd Road bike path. It yep. was considered that this area was safe and allowed for injured people to gather and be treated by a small team of first aiders. Legal observers witnessed this area being suddenly charged and forcibly cleared by police without warning. Several first aiders were then sprayed with OC foam while attempting to regain access to the boxes of medical PPE and first aid supplies left in areas that were now behind police lines. Attempts That's by right. protest liaison and medics to regain access to their medical supplies were repeatedly denied by police and it took over 30 minutes for senior officers to eventually po- provide the supplies. This was a tactic and a strategy. That's right. That was a tactic and a strategy to clear what was obviously a good faith attempt to treat people injured by police activity and which should be a protected um, endeavour, just like uh, journalism, legal observation, like what MALs do, you know, on those kinds of sites, and any emergency services, including medics, should all be, again, under an international kind of human rights frame, as well as, to some extent, in Australian legislation, they should all be protected activities. And instead... Vic Pohl just operates with impunity, treats everyone, um, you know, throws everyone in the same kind of negative basket of, like, you're a troublemaker, you're an activist, basically code for you're getting in the, in the way of the flow of capital, and we're here to do the work of the state and, and of, of capital, which is to get you out of the way. They actually arrested... who you are and yeah. what you're doing. They That's actually right. arrested, they arrested a first data. That's right. And, and on top of all of this, they dragged someone out of a wheelchair. Yeah, I know. And then they, really and they put, they put a police line in front of them. The poor person was on the ground, uh, surrounded by two lines of... Uh, uh, they had... It's just staggering. It was, this was all captured on, on, on film. People can, I think pretty easily access it on social media. Uh, I know that it was on the WACA page, um, Whistleblowers and Community Activists, I think it stands for. So if you go to ACA underscore WACA at, um, uh, on Instagram, I think you can send, you know, this, this video was sh- widely shared. That, that person, you know, and I think that what you're raising about the treatment of medics and the treatment of people in, you know, in wheelchairs, people with serious accessibility needs 
just being blanketly treated in the same brutal manner by Vic Pohl really sums up um, their approach to this. And I think the takeaway, one of the takeaways anyway, is that Vic Pohl would not have acted in such desperate and violent ways if this picket had not constituted such a threat to the very powers that the police force exists to try to protect. And those powers <laughs> are the powers right. of capital. That's you exactly know, right. When, when you're acting so desperately as to send, exactly, to nakedly um, admit, in effect, that you're going to throw literally everything you have at this one picket. You're going to call basically all the cops that are available down to Port Melbourne to outnumber picketers 10 to 1, to block access to a public space, well, to a space that the public has access to until such a time as those individual members of the public are told by the Port Authority that they are trespassing, which those people were not told because they haven't yet entered the site and they were being blocked from entering the site and standing with their comrades in solidarity um, by Victoria Police under what I understand at least to be you know, il- illegal um, operations. But, you know, we know that we know that the police regularly stretch the, you know, what's established as um, within the law, particularly well, that's when it why comes you to moving Mel's. on... Well, that's right. Thank God for Mel's. Yeah, thank um, God for Mel's. But, you know, they are acting, you know, to act in such a, a desperate way really bespeaks, I think, the impact of this picket, which by the time it was cleared, so Friday afternoon, Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon, Monday afternoon, that's Saturday, Sunday, Monday, that's three more than three full days, so more than 72 hours, that picket successfully prevented the access by land gates anyway of wharfies to that site. And it meant that the Zim ship had to stay at anchor. It couldn't even dock because the ships that were at berth couldn't be loaded up to be to, to get out and allow the Zim um, Ganges was the name of the ship space to, to come in. Um, that that desperation on the Monday afternoon, I think, really bespeaks the really unimaginable success of that community picket in stopping work at that site. Mm. Other other features of <laughs> uh, of what occurred that that similarly I think speak to how desperate the situation got for for the flow of capital in that in that at that site was that by Sunday night, having repeatedly failed to collaborate with Vic Pole um, to get to force workers to cross the picket line by land, the bosses of the terminal decided, all right, we're going to ferry the workers in secretly, literally by night, fly, you know, we're going to fly, fly them in by night um, by ferry from Spotswood to directly to the dock part that we didn't have. You know, we couldn't block that because it, it, it's behind the gate, yeah, right? So, right? So we were successfully blocking access to the, to the work site um, by land. Yeah, you'd have to be on the other side at Spotswood. Well, right, we would have had to get to Spotswood yeah. We would have had to know it was happening. We would have had to try and then picket um, a different, uh, you know, a third... But, but what you're really saying... On the ben, other side of the Yarra. Yeah, 
But what you're really saying, Ben, is that it, it, this isn't over. It's it's uh, in the sense that it, uh, this is going to be a lot of hell for the big poll because this is not over. And also, that I mean, they brought police. To, uh, they brought horses as well, didn't they? That's right. On Monday afternoon, yeah, horses. Uh, they brought horses, and you know, we had. That's Again, what I always say that you know when when you're at a, a demonstration, you know, oh my God, they brought in the horses. Yeah, and it's you know it's an it's a, an opportunity for that, you know, for what is to to, to my ear like one of those great Australian um, protest chants, which is get those animals off those horses. That's exactly right. Um, <laughs> and you know we talk about we hear, don't we, um, genocidal intent in the discourse of Israeli politicians and um, you know fear mongers. Yeah saying we, we're fighting, you know, who are we fighting in Gaza? We're fighting human animals. Oh, it's outrageous. But when police are coming in and, you know, at 10 to 1 on horseback and with indiscriminate use of pepper spray and violence, um, clearing a picket that consists by that point of, you know, young people, people with mixed abilities, people of a range of different genders, uh, many of whom are vulnerable, when they're treating them in that way, they really, they are really the animals in, in that situation. And you're right that it's not over. It's not over for Vic Pol in terms of the legal consequences of the way they behaved on, on that day. It's not over for the broader question of policing powers. We saw in New South Wales the first serious attempt at a picket at the docks in Sydney was cleared with extreme violence, many arrests were made under the even more punitive powers that police have in, in quote-unquote, protected areas in New South Wales after recent legislation was passed. Um, so, you know, that's, that raises all kinds of questions for, for the future of police powers in, in Victoria and the way that it's being mobilised to, you know, try to cut this incredible community activism that, we, that we've been seeing since October 7th uh, to try to cut that off at the knees. And it's not over for the bosses. It's not over for Zim shipping. It's not over for any terminal in Victoria or uh, around the country that chooses to continue to do business with, gen with genocide ships because that is what Zim ships and any affiliate ships... Uh, now categorically are, and however violent and desperate police might be and continue to, to be uh, to try to ensure that capital continues to flow through those sites on and off those ships, uh, the, the community, unionists, activists of all kinds of political stripes and all kinds of, uh, you know, a, a range of ages and genders from, you know, we had children as young as five at the picket, we had elderly women... Um, many of them, you know, at a, at, a, at a political action of this kind for the first time in their lives, uh, they're going to continue to be showing up. And they're going to be showing up in larger and larger numbers. And the fact is that when you have 200 people at a picket like that, or 300 people, or 1,000 people, which is absolutely within the realm of possibility, we have tens of thousands regularly at the Sunday rally. When you have that many people, the cops don't stand a chance. They can't touch that a group that large. I mean, they can try and they will continue to try and they will continue to 
you know, um, behave in unjustifiable ways and ways which should be prosecuted and, and I believe will be prosecuted as, as far as possible. But the community has already shown where it stands on this. The polling is extremely clear. People want the genocide to stop and more and more they are getting politically organised and, and involved for the first time in their lives and, and learning what it means to put their own bodies on the line to stop the flow of um, to stop the flow of capital to that kind of genocidal warmongering uh, behaviour as we're, as we're seeing in Gaza and other places. And the thing I want to end on, Annie, if you yeah. will, is that at some point on Sunday night, no, sorry, on Monday uh, after the after the picket was cleared, just before midnight. Um, when they were preparing finally to bring the Zim Ganges into dock, having succeeded in sneaking workers in by ferry. They also considered using a uh, helicopter, which a former MUA member and Wharfie told me they have actually done before. When I was dumbfounded and, and laughing, when we were laughing at the concept that they might have to helicopter workers in, um, he said to us, well, it wouldn't be the first time. They've done it before. Um, so having snuck them in on Sunday night to load up that ship that was in, in the berth, get it out and prepare for the Ganges to come in, the Zim Ganges turned off its GPS tracking. Now, I'm no lawyer, but our understanding is that according to Australian and international maritime orders, a ship can only justifiably turn off its GPS tracking because this is a, wow. a safety and logistics mechanism yeah. that a, num you know, a number of different... Uh, points of the, you know, of the um, workforce kind of use, and it's you know it's it's used to 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 keep people safe on and off ships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's only justified in turning that GPS tracking off when it, the company running that ship, believes there is a, a genuine safety or security risk posed to the ship. Wow, and that's the just only incredible. other place. The only other place that we know that Zim Shipping regularly has been doing this, turning off its GPS tracking, is off the coast of Yemen. Now, you know, the community picketers at the docks in Port Melbourne who will continue to turn up, whether it's Port Melbourne, Web Dock, whether it's uh, Swanson Dock in West Melbourne, whether it's docks on the other side of the river and docks all over the country, the people will continue to be turning up and saying, not in our name, you won't be getting into work to load or unload this genocide ship. They can try to spin that as a security concern for the ship itself. But what the, the truth is that they try to go dark to, to hide what they're doing. But what you get is this hilarious situation where on the GPS tracking, you have the tugboats that are necessary to bring the ship in. Their GPS has been turned off. So <laughs> uh, the ship's hitting at anchor. It suddenly disappears. And then, you know, two tugboats or, you know, several tugboats come to the ship and start to, to guide it into the, into the dock. But as far as Zim is concerned, the community picketers might as well be Houthi rebels. Yeah. Um, and they are scared, and they are trying to to cloak their operations in 
um, in darkness and claiming that it's a, a security and safety concern for the ship. Well, I can tell you that it's certainly a concern for the unimpeded flow of capital that is directly funding, aiding and abetting uh, a genocidal campaign in Gaza. And while that continues, the, the so-called safety or security concern constituted by a picket of concerned citizens at any dock that is prepared to receive those ships will continue. Thank you very much for talking to us this morning, Ben. Such a pleasure, Annie, and uh, thanks for your show that, you know, does so much, I think, to galvanise the movement. And, you know, if people are interested in getting involved in this, any union member is uh, able to participate in the political organising run by Unionists for Palestine. Check out our Instagram and Facebook presences. Um, You can easily contact us that way. There's an email address, which I don't know off the top of my head, but we're we're easy to contact. And if you're not in a union, then follow Free Palestine Melbourne and... uh, You you haven't turned your GPS. You haven't uh, got rid of your GPS. Everybody can find you. (laughs) Absolutely. We're all over social media where we're doing, you know, we're necessarily doing, uh, all of us, the reporting that the ABC and the mainstream media refused to do. Uh, We saw last night that when the ICJ ruled as strongly as it could have ruled... That's right. ...ready immediately, the entire media globally swung into action trying to spin this story as ICJ stops short of calling for a ceasefire. Yeah, that's right. ceasefire is not something that the ICJ could have called for, given that Palestine was not a party to the legal case. The ICJ said almost almost, uh, unanimously and certainly unequivocally that what is occurring in Gaza is a genocide and Israel must stop doing it. That is the reality, that is the legal reality, and that is the basis for people to continue the incredible mobilisation of community activism that we've seen in the last 112 days, I believe it is now. Yep. Um, and, it, you know, it will continue. And, it, frankly, it's a movement like we've not seen in Australia um, and around the world. But, you know, we're talking on the ground in terms of um, community Tickets and community activism in concert with unionism, with the, with the trade union movement, which is, you know, in some cases slowly being dragged to, to this position by, by that community. But, you know, we have the, we have the vast majority of, um, of, of public sentiment behind us uh, and we will continue to work to, to bring our unions along. Um, but... You know, that is, that is the reality now. It is a genocide. It is apartheid. Uh, it is an illegal occupation. And this is, you know, the, the kinds of political organising that we're seeing right now, it's, it's what we've been, you know, it's what people have been dreaming of for, for decades. So that's a gift. As, there are so many gifts that the Palestinian people, I think, um, have, have given us over the years. They've, they've continued to be this beacon, this, this example of resistance to colonial occupation and violence. 
And, you know, in terms of the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign, for instance, I also encourage your, your listeners, if they haven't checked out BDS, to, you know, hop online and see what they're about. That is an absolutely crucial and historic kind of attempt to organise anti-capitalist resistance across the world um, in the name of the defence of the Palestinian people and the, and the, the, the genocide that has been perhaps a bit more slowly and now, you know, really urgently, but has been occurring against them since before the Nakba, since before 1948, when Israel's illegal occupation of historic Palestine began. We have to leave um, it there. We're right, we're right up to the edge of the uh, time frame for right this program. Thanks so much, Annie. Really Thank appreciate you. it. Yeah, well, that was Ben Holt. He gave us a very clear understanding of what's happened down at the community picket at WebDoc, and it's not over, as we said. We couldn't cover a whole range of the other things we were going to do that I said I threatened you with at the beginning of the show, but we'll do that next week. Um, we did get to hear from Declan Fuba-Gillick at the uh, pro-Palestinian rally uh, on uh, the 21st in Melbourne. We did hear a little bit of Rula Karafali uh, in Sydney. That was a recording given to me by Vivian Langford from the uh, Climate Action Show, which you can hear on Monday afternoons. We better go because um, uh, we really are at the end of our time. I'll go out with Tide, uh, Eva Papu, a bit of it. And coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.